Um, a couple of things. Number one, I just want to reiterate a couple of the announcements that were mentioned uh, earlier by Mark. Uh, first of all, um, we're not there today because um, Micah has been sick and there might have been just a chance that he might have COVID. So we went out and got tested. That's why we're not there today. That's why we're talking to you guys remotely. But I want to speak to it about, about it in a different way. This is our commitment to you, has always been our commitment to you ever since this whole time has, has set out. We want to encourage you as a congregation that if you're sick in any way, shape, or form, please, we, we'd love for you just to refrain from fellowshipping with us in person together. Um, but if you're not sick, we would love for you to be a part of our fellowship in our congregation. We're trying to do everything that we can to ensure a safe environment that you can have confidence that the people who are there are not feeling any sickness whatsoever and it's a place where you can come and worship God together. So, Because there's a many of you that... You know, I haven't seen for 10 months, and I would love to see your faces again. And so knowing that we're trying to provide that type of environment for you, we would love to see your face and have the confidence of, of stepping into some place like that. Uh, along those same lines, I want to encourage you guys um, that if you are viewing us online, um, as much as possible, I would love for you guys to view us live if you can, just because it's part of that same rhythm of being a part of the congregation at the same time. We can start creating kind of patterns and habits for ourselves that gets used to not showing up at 1030, which is going to make it a lot harder when we're ready to meet back together again by readjusting our whole schedule. So if you're viewing online, and I know many of you are right now, but some of you may do it later. And if you're doing it at a later time, can I encourage you? Start viewing us at 10.30 if you can't be, a, be there in person, just so that you have the opportunity to have a semblance of, of that fellowship togetherness. I know we felt that, that idea that we were actually kind of there live, even though we were here at home. Um, also, if you are, if you are homebound uh, or if you have been uh, not in fellowship, we would really encourage you guys to, so that you might have fellowship, to get involved in, in a virtual Facebook, a virtual live, uh, life group. Just because of the fact that we have a, a couple of our life group, I believe John and Mia's life group and um, uh, Chris Pierce's life group are all virtual online. And it gives a semblance of a fellowship, even if you're not in a position where you feel like you can meet with other people. So we really want to encourage you to do that. If you want to find out how to get involved with that or how we can get you involved with that, would you text the, the word life group to that 207-4443 number? And we will make sure that you can get in, in contact with a life group that can meet virtually with you. We really want to offer as much fellowship as at, during this time as we can together. Um, and then finally, um, I just want to encourage our entire congregation to, over these next couple of weeks, as more shutdowns have happened, uh, to really think about reaching out, whether you're virtual or not, reach out to those who are shut-ins within our, within our church. Uh, to find out if they need anything during this time. These are just practical things that we can do as a body of Christ during this time where things are a little bit harder for us to get together. So my prayer for you guys is to do just that. And by doing those things, by doing those three things together, by getting us a little bit more involved, we're going to feel more a part of the body of Christ. So let's take care of each other during that time. 
Um, I'm really excited because we get to end today uh, finishing the Gospel of Luke from a a sermon I'm calling The Gospel According to Judas, which is a a strange title indeed, but we'll get into why why we're going to step into that and and the reasons for it in a few minutes. Um, But this past week, for those of you who have um, who might be visiting us or visiting us online, one of the things we do at Heights is we're committed to going through the Bible in five years, and we're nearly at the end of our third year of doing this. Um, and what we do as a, a body is we read uh, uh, six days a week together, selected passages from Scripture as we're going through the Scripture together. And then whoever's preaching, whether it's myself or Mark or anybody else, we preach from the passages that we've read during this last week. And this week we finished, um, and this uh, this past week we finished um, uh, the Gospel of Luke, reading chapters 21 through 24 together. Um, and with that being said, you know there's a lot that's going on in chapters 21 through 24. Um, we have the signs at the end of the age because Jesus is already coming into Jerusalem. And so we have the signs at the end of the age where he talks about how bad things are going to get for Christians. We see that Judas at the beginning of chapter 22 is has agreed to betray Jesus. And we see the Last Supper take place. We see that Jesus goes off on his own and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's betrayed by Judas and he's arrested. Um, we see that Peter is going to disown Jesus and that prophecy of Jesus saying that he's going to disown him uh, before the end of the night. We see that take place. We see that Pilate and Herod become friends as they pass Jesus among themselves in this arresting thing. I believe John had mentioned it a couple weeks ago that they had been enemies before. And, and we talked about the, the issue of how they had become enemies through the way that Pilate had acted and mixed the blood of, of the Gentiles with, with that of sacrifices and the like. And so now we have Pilate who's sending Jesus to Herod in his jurisdiction and and Herod sending him back to Pilate and where they had been enemies before now they have become friends Uh, and then of course we see the crucifixion and burial of Jesus uh, his time on the cross and his buried and then of course the the glorious chapter 24 where we see Jesus raised from the dead and we see him on the road to Emmaus as he talks to two disciples who were who get the opportunity of hearing Jesus talking about how he fulfilled all the prophecies of what the Christ had to do. And then we see him appearing finally to the disciples and opening the scriptures and opening their minds where they could actually understand what it is that he was saying. And then he, at the end of this gospel, we see that Jesus ascends to heaven and that the disciples were praising God and worshiping God in the temple. And this is where the first volume of Luke ends. As a matter of fact, you know, Mark has been calling this whole series Luke Acts because it really is. At the beginning of, of chapter one in Acts, uh, there's some interesting statements that happen there as when Luke opens up the gospel, he says, I, in my former uh, chronicle, Theophilus, I wrote to you all the things that Jesus began to do. It's interesting that he says that he began to do those things even though Jesus had ascended and rose from the dead, and the disciples are without Jesus at the end of the Gospel of Luke. So that's a very interesting thing that, that's mentioned during that time. And so what we're going to talk about today is, is we're going to talk, kind of take a character reference of a person in the Scripture 
that we know very much about, that we talk about a lot, but we never even thought about his motivations beyond that, and that's Judas. And that's why the uh, the um, sermon I've call, called today is called The Gospel According to Judas. And I want to make a delineation because I think that there's a differentiation between the plan of Satan which is the destruction of Jesus and God's plan of redemption that we see working out, that Jesus is, that Satan is always trying to assert that. We see that in the, um, in the temptation of Jesus in the desert, where he tries to get him to worship him, or to make, you know, bread out of stones, or to throw himself down from the temple so that the angels might lift him up. And in each time, Jesus confronts him with the scripture. We see that same thing, uh, that Satan is being used by Peter when Peter rebukes Jesus in, in um, um, Matthew chapter 16 and says, you're never going to die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I, I believe that this is, this is in line with what Satan wants to, to do, is usurp God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so there's a difference, in my opinion, between the plan of Satan and the motivation of Peter and the motivation of Judas, these two people who have been associated with Satan. You know, with, with Peter's first motivation when he's called Satan the first time is to disrupt and usurp the plan of salvation of God. The second time, when Jesus talks to him about uh, Satan sifting him as wheat. As a matter of fact, that's what we read in Luke chapter 22 this week, uh, that, that Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, and when you return, you know, strengthen your brothers. This, this is what Jesus would tell Peter. And this sifting comes in the form of this denial that Peter is going to give to Jesus three times. See, Peter wants his his motivation is he wants to stand strong for Jesus, but his self-preservation prevents him from doing so. We're going to see a totally different Peter when it comes to Acts after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the motivation of Peter was to stand up for for Christ, but in that moment of fearfulness is one of self-preservation. As a matter of fact, I would say that some of us are struggling with that same self-preservation as it comes to the COVID stuff that we're dealing with, that we we need to believe in a a, a bigger Jesus and and not worry about so much some of the fears that come with um, death. And that's that's what Peter was worried about when he was talking about suffering for Jesus during that time. But moving on to the motivation for Judas. See, Judas, I think, has different motivations than Peter does, and even different motivations than Satan does. Satan wants the destruction of Christ. Judas, I don't think, necessarily wanted that. And I think we can see that through the scripture. Now, I want to be very clear that that we're going into a little realm of speculation that's going to be speculation based upon the word of God. Um, because the scripture doesn't give true motivations for Judas, but rather that Satan entered Judas to do the work that God had designed. Okay, so we want to understand uh, what is going on there. So what are the motivations that could be attributed to Judas? Well, one motivation possibly is that of petty revenge being for being called out. If you guys will turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, which I pray you do, um, and turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and verses 1 through 8. This is where Jesus is anointed at Bethany. And we see the anointing take place in all four of the Gospels. But in John chapter 12, it's identified who it was and some other details in this account that aren't attributed in the other Gospels. 
So verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to keep him, help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And so the idea that that shortly after this, we see that Judas goes off to betray Jesus. Could it be that um, this is kind of a petty revenge for being called out in a moment of um, of a moment of greed that he may have wanted for himself? I don't think that this is very likely just because Judas had already been in much harder circumstances. If we look at John chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. And after the feeding of the 5,000, we see that Jesus sends the people away who wanted to make him king by force. He walks on the, prays all night, he walks on the water to the other side, and then he gives a really, really hard teaching about his body being real flesh being flesh to be eaten and blood to be drinking by drinking excuse me be drank by the people who would follow him and that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood they have no part in him and this is a hard saying so hard that most of the crowds stopped following him from that point and didn't become his disciples anymore it says in in John chapter 6 and at the end of that time we still see Judas there and Judas, even being there, is identified by Jesus. He said, you know, haven't I chosen you twelve and yet one of you is a devil? That's how chapter six of John ends. But Judas stayed there. And this was a hard time when it would have been easy to bail on Jesus and not be a part of it. And so the idea that, that the motivation of Judas was petty revenge, I don't think bears itself out in the scripture. Actually, what I think is more likely of what Judas is hoping for, and something that I think we see throughout the scriptures, is this idea that it would be ushering in an earthly kingdom of God, that Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, is one of an earthly king. As a matter of fact, it was a common misconception that the disciples actually struggled with during that time. The idea that um, that that. God was going to usher in an earthly king to rule over all the people who had ruled over them. That it would be a kingdom that would never be overthrown again, and we were ushering that in. And so think about the things that, that lend to this idea. Number one is this. Jesus was unwilling to become king by force. We, we see that in John chapter 6, verse 15. As soon as he understood that the crowds there, after he fed the 5,000s, wanted to make him king by force, he withdrew. He left that place. And so when we go back to that John chapter 6, we see that Jesus wasn't, wasn't interested in becoming king by force. Also, we also see the disciples 
arguing often over who was the greatest. As a matter of fact, even at the Lord's Supper, what we're looking at right there in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 24, we see that Jesus says, you know, that there's there's an argument that came out among them concerning who was the greatest among them. It's not the first time that it happened. We also see it in Luke chapter 9, verse 46. The discussion of who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven happens a lot in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the disciples oftentimes vied for favored positions in Christ's kingdom. Uh, I think the most telling one is Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, where we see Jesus uh, being approached by James and John's mother to ask, Hey, when you come into your kingdom, can my sons sit at your right hand and at your left hand? I mean, they're always vying for position of favor in this kingdom that Jesus is going to bring forward. And so this is not just Judas thinking about where his place is. This is all the disciples thinking that. Because back in the back of their mind, they're thinking of kind of an earthly kingdom right now. They trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the promised Messiah. But they can't think beyond this idea of an earthly king. And I think the motivation of Judas is there as well. You know, Judas's thievery is consistent with those who who were uh, who use political power for gain. I mean, how many of us know of dishonest politicians who use their position in order to gain favor, to gain money, to gain position, uh, so that personally they benefit? So the idea that Jesus is, that Judas is a holder of the money bag and takes a little bit out. You know, I'm just going to take my little 10% out because, you know, I'm helping to distribute this, so I feel like I have a part in taking this myself. It's also ironic that he would accept the 30 pieces of silver because he was in it more more for the money than anything else, although I don't think that was his main motivation. And so we see these things that are happening. We also see that Jesus mentioned often that he was going to be betrayed. We see it in Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. We see it in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 34 and 33. And Luke chapter 9, verse 44. We see that Jesus mentioned on more than one occasion that he was going to be betrayed by somebody, handed over to the chief priests and elders, killed, and then he was going to raise again on the third day. And since Jesus spoke in parables, it says nobody knew what he was talking about. Nobody took that this death was going to be literal. Nobody took that this idea of him dying was going to be something that he was actually going to do. But this idea of being handed over, this idea of being betrayed, was definitely seeded throughout the disciples. And so... I believe when we look at all of that, we're looking at the idea that Jesus, that Judas, excuse me, saw that the betrayal, his betrayal, was necessary for the revelation of Jesus as king. When we look at Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 53 and 54, when Jesus is arrested, we see that, you know, Judas has gone to the chief priests. He's agreed to betray him. He's agreed to betray him, and he looked for an occasion to do it privately. And so when, when Judas is confronting Jesus, it's interesting. When we look at uh, how he's confronted in Matthew, Jesus calls him friend. When we look at it in Luke, he says, Do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? 
And and this talks about the terrible deception that's taken forth. But in Matthew's account, after after Peter has sliced off the, the ear of the high priest's servant and Jesus has put it back on again, in Matthew's account, he says, put that away. He said, do I not have at my disposal 12 legions of angels that I could call to my father and he would give me in a moment's notice? See, I think that this is more along the lines of what Judas is hoping to usher in by forcing Jesus' hand. Because by forcing his hand, he gets his Messiah here on earth. And it's interesting. It's interesting to note Judas' reaction to Jesus' condemnation. If you will, turn with me to um, Matthew chapter 27. It's the only one that records uh, in the Gospels what happens with um, what happens with Judas after the betrayal of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 27 and verse 1, it says this. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. And they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 uh, silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. And then we read, of course, that this this money that's thrown into the temple is used to buy the very plot of land for which Judas hung himself and eventually would fall to the ground and burst open with in Acts chapter 1. But what an interesting thing to look at is what we see with Judas and his reaction. Notice Judas at the betrayal doesn't hang himself immediately. As a matter of fact, he waits. He waits all night. He waits longer than Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And it's after morning that Judas is remorseful. And it's not until the uh, pronouncement of condemnation for Jesus that he decides to go and hang himself. It's really interesting when you look at it in that way, that he was still hopeful that Jesus is going to be this this person king. So he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. And at the, at the announcement of the condemnation, he has now lost his Messiah. And it's really interesting because it's after that, that's when he goes. That's when he returns the money. That's when he says that he's betrayed innocent blood, that Jesus isn't going to come out of this, that Jesus isn't avoiding death. And because Jesus was going to die, Judas's Messiah was dead. You see, Judas didn't see Jesus as God incarnate. He saw Jesus as a political ruler that would usher in the kingdom of God on earth. You know, I'm afraid that we live in a time, in a very contentious time right now, where many people have adopted the gospel of Judas in recent days. Social media is ablaze with worries over who's going to be president or who has been president over the last four years, as if salvation or the spreading of the gospel of Christ is dependent upon those who are in office. You know, the Great Commission, we quote all the time. Think about it. The Great Commission says, Go therefore, and may uh, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. You know, we quote that all the time as the Great Commission. And yet, at the same time, that's not the entirety of the Great Commission. The Great Commission actually starts in verse 18 of Matthew 28, where Jesus proclaims, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. See, the therefore comes after this pronouncement that all of authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. You know, we have read this year about the history of God using all types of people who are in power, who would be against the Jewish religion or against Christians in general. And he uses them anyway for his purpose. We've read this here how God used Nebuchadnezzar to punish people of Israel for their sins. When judgment was coming, we hear very clearly from the word of God that Nebuchadnezzar was actually God's instrument of destruction, used by name by Jeremiah, who would say that. As a matter of fact, not only was Nebuchadnezzar God's instrument of destruction and exile for the people of Israel, but God would use another pagan king, Cyrus, to be the instrument of bringing people back after the 70 years of exile. We read that he was used of, of God in both Nehemiah, we read about it in Isaiah, where Cyrus is named as, as a king. And again, he's his chosen instrument. And this idea that we have to have people in power or people or presidents that are um, somehow aligned with biblical principles in order for us to fulfill the Great Commission or to think that, that things are going to get worse, they might. But I think that when we think about what Rosie said earlier concerning the persecuted church, we've got brothers and sisters in Christ who are in China, who are in North Korea, who are in the Middle East, who have never had political power, who have never been in a place where the politics has helped them in any way feel safe concerning their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, their whole idea of being able to share the gospel of Christ transcends that because they believe wholeheartedly that all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. And it doesn't matter who's in power. And it doesn't matter who's president. And it doesn't matter what's going on in our culture because Jesus has defeated a greater thing than a political opponent. He has defeated sin and death. That's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we easily forget that these same disciples who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus never had a government that was favorable to them. We're going to read throughout all of Acts that the government, whether it's in Jerusalem, whether it's in Judea, whether it's in the greater Roman Empire, never had the the fortune of having the political opponents being on their side or the political pundits being on their side so that they could easily spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was never like that. And yet they spread the gospel anyway. And they changed the world and turned it upside down one for another and for the kingdom of God. And so I think it's very important that we don't overlook this idea of whose kingdom we're really proclaiming. Are we trying to proclaim an earthly kingdom that's going to go to waste? Whether we're trying to preserve our life or trying to preserve our political power, none of those things are going to last. The only thing that lasts is what Jesus bought us on the cross where he forgave us of our sins and conquered death. That you and I have a promise of a greater kingdom still. 
And I think that it's too easy for you and I to forget that that you and I serve a God that's conquered sin and death. And it's him who we serve. And that's why we change and, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because we're wanting some sort of political righteousness or something to come by this this idea that life will be easier if such and such were in power. Because our great commission isn't dependent upon who's president. Our great commission isn't dependent upon how the political waters favor us or don't favor us or becomes easier or harder to be a Christian. It's been a little hard right now to be a Christian. We're not doing really good with it, are we? How many of us are really sharing the gospel of Christ the way that we ought to? How many of us are sharing in such a way where we are proclaiming that all authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus? How many of us are really doing that in the midst of what we're going through right now? Shouldn't we be living differently? Shouldn't that kingdom show through us? My contention to you, as the people of Heights whom I love, the people who are online who who are hearing this, for those of you who are listening who may not know Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is greater than anything that's found here on earth greater than anything found here on earth. That's what I want to live for. That's what I want to live for in my life. That's what I want to have confidence for. That's what I want to proclaim boldly to the world around me. That's what I want to share with my brother and sister because I believe that it's only under the name of Jesus that people are saved. And if I believe that with all my heart, then I need to go boldly, no matter my circumstances, to be able to share that with my workmates, no matter how hard it might be, with my neighbors. I need to live boldly for Jesus Christ in an age where being bold is a hard thing to do. It's what the early church has always had to do. So, my question to you as I close today is is just simply this. Do we really believe that we have an inheritance that will never spoil, rot, or fade, as it says in 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5? through Because sin has been defeated and death has no more sting. Or are we hoping for an earthly kingdom that will never last? The answer to that question will let you know whether you're trusting in the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Jesus Christ. As for me, I believe that no matter what the world looks like, all the authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, and therefore I am going to live that way, and I pray that you will too. I do. Maybe you put too much stock in what's going on in the world right now. Worried about what's going to come down the pike in the next 12 months for whoever might be president. Maybe you've seen that as as the salvation of our country or not the salvation of our country. When I look at the idea that all authority has been given to Jesus all authority on heaven and earth. There is no president. There is no king. There is no ruler. There is no authority that could usurp his power. He uses pagan kings for his own purposes. And you and I as believers in Christ need to have that confidence that he does so. And believe that our mission doesn't change no matter who's in power. That we believe in something greater than a political process but believe in a king who's over all and wants to, one by one, change the heart 
of the people through their knowledge of Jesus Christ, their acceptance of their, their of his dying on the cross for their sins, and a kingdom that will never spoil, rot, or fade. That is guaranteed for us because we're believers in him. My prayer is that's you. My prayer is that we get back to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are around us. There are people who need to come to our church, people. There really are. I know locking down makes it harder, but people need to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ from your lips, from our congregation, and we need to be fearless in sharing that because it's only in the name of Jesus Christ by which men can be saved. That's what his death and his resurrection has meant. Not a progressive gospel which only tries to speak truth to power and only leaves us with a Jesus who is an earthly king and his death really means nothing in the end. My prayer for you is that you will hold on to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share Christ and the kingdom of God to those who need to hear it one by one by one. And let's not worry about the, what the world is going through. Because this world and everything that's in it is passing away. But you know what? The one that's in us, greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. Let's live that out. Let's live out the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of God, to the glory of Jesus Christ, so that the world can witness how different we truly are. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for our time together, um, even though we're a little bit apart today. But God, First and foremost, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will be about your kingdom. It doesn't matter what's going on in our country. It doesn't matter about COVID. It doesn't matter about the president. It doesn't matter about anything else that's going on. You have asked us, O oh Lord, to be your witnesses because all authority and all power have been given to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us live that way. In the name of Jesus, I pray, help us to adopt, O oh Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ into every area of our life. And God, not the gospel of Judas or anything else that this world has to offer that's going to pass away. Help us proclaim your name boldly to our friends, to our family. Help us not forget that the Great Commission doesn't go away just because times are tougher. God, help us, dear Heavenly Father, to have a great boldness and to live fearlessly for Jesus, knowing that this is not our home. And may people see that confidence in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.